Hi, this is Kristen Regal. And this is Paul Rock. And welcome to the Common Room Podcast. Um, every Sunday at 1045, we gather together to talk about life and spirituality, about the common experiences we share, as well as some of the questions we wrestle with. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope to see you some Sunday at 1045. story I want to share with you all, and some of you know this, so you, and I'm going to show some pictures, so if you can get your chair so you can see this. Um, like I said, my, um, my disposition uh, as an individual, as a kid, as an adult, is to be of an optimist and to want things to go well and, and be a little bit idyllic in, uh, in my hopes for my life and for others, and, um, and I, I shared um, this quote that has got stuck in my head a couple of months ago is from a novel somebody gave me. Uh, it's called A Gentleman in Moscow, written by a guy named Amor Towles. I think that's how you say his name. He's an exquisite writer. I would recommend it to you just, just for just the prose. Um, but it's the story of a guy, a Count Rostov is his name. And Count Rostov comes from nobility, aristocratic family in Russia. And uh, he is sympathetic to the um, to the communist revolution, but because he's an aristocrat, he's immediately kind of questioned and seen as the as a, the kind of the enemy. Once the the revolution takes place and the and the, the Romanovs are killed and the communists take over Moscow um, in 1917, Rostov is there staying in a hotel, and he gets called to the one of the leaders of the communist um, party's um, offices. And he's not sure what to expect. Uh, on the one hand, he's like, listen, I, I get it. I know why you guys are doing this. But at the same time, clearly, I'm like nobility. Um, and there are some people who want to put a bullet in his head and just have, you know, be done with him and kind of get rid of the old order. Um, and some people want to send him to Siberia. But what they end up doing is um, confining him to house arrest for the rest of his life. He cannot set foot out of the hotel that he's staying in. He was staying in, like, this suite, this beautiful suite in a hotel. Uh, they take him out of there, they sell most of his furniture, and they move him to a room in the top floor, just one room where the servants used to stay. So he's, the whole book is about him having to readjust, he's probably in his mid-30s when this happens, to life um, in Moscow, in this hotel, in this room, um, and it, it spans his life for the next about 40 years. Um, and, uh, and his adjustments and his understanding of what life was going to be in town now, what it was, and how he, how he kind of corrects for that and learns along the way. And one of the one of the stories, it, a number of stories take place, but one of them, uh, kind of the key relationship in the story is with a, a relationship that he strikes up with this little girl named Nina, and Nina is like this super smart, precocious, um, inquisitive nine-year-old girl that he uh, she, she sits he always sits alone at this nice restaurant in the in, in the in the hotel, uh, and she starts coming up and just kind of pulling her chair up next to him and asking him questions because she's just curious about him because she hears he's a he's a nobleman. Uh, her dad is a leader in the Communist Party, and so their family has actually moved into the hotel, and he's living from they're living there. And so he starts to Rostov um, uh, strikes up this relationship with with Nina, and he's able to share with her some things, but she's able to share a lot of stuff with him and uh, teach him how to. She's got a skeleton key; she can get into any any room in the in the in the hotel, and so she like takes him to these different places he's never been before, and uh, it's this wonderful, cute relationship. They both realize they love ice cream, and so they get together and talk. So she, she grows up and ends up moving on, and then he's still there in the hotel. And uh, you know, 15, 20 years later, he sees her in the lobby of the hotel, and she comes and gives him a hug. But she's, she's a little bit standoffish, and she said, listen, I'm now a leader in the Communist Party. I've been given this assignment. I've got to go do this thing. My family 
is kind of falling apart. I'm here to ask you a favor. Would you be willing to watch my daughter? She's got a little girl herself now for two weeks as I go and, and do this assignment. And Rothstuff is like, you know, he's a single guy. He's never had kids. He's like, uh, sure, you know, I'll do this. And so he takes her in, and, uh, and Nina never returns. Uh, we don't know what happens to her, but, but Rothstuff ends up becoming this father, ends up having this family he never expected to have. And, and it, it kind of tells the story about their relationship and how she teaches him and how he teaches her and all that. Then fast forward to the end of the book, and it's him uh, lying in bed with, with this lover, this woman that he's kind of known throughout the years as well. And she has brought a copy of Life magazine that she had gotten from a friend from the United States. And they're sitting there in bed, paging through Life Magazine. They're both in their, I don't know, 70s or 80s. And they're, um, and they're looking at all these different things in, in America. And, and Rostov says, uh, you know, I recognize that what we humans do um, every day is we look to make life convenient. We just strive for conveniences and comfort. And they, he said, you know, whether it's a job that you look that's going to be most convenient, or it's a schedule, or it's relationships, or it's gadgets, or it's a Christmas wish list up, and in, in the Life magazine, they're looking at this page that's got this, this latest thing in the United States, which is the, the electric garage door opener. And he said, you know, all we strive for is just more and more convenience. He said, but I have to tell you, as I look back on my life, the most remarkable and significant things that have taken place to me in life have been the inconveniences. The things that have truly shaped me and made me who I am at the deepest level are the inconveniences. And that line has stuck in my heart and stuck in my mind um, ever since then. This idea that we are wired to consistently um, long for and to search out and to kind of navigate our lives towards what is most convenient. And yet, knowing that it is the inconvenient things that take place that typically shape us the most and have the most impact on us and make us who we are. It, it's, it's, um, it's interesting because I think you're like me, when, when I think about the people in my life, and I can think of people here at this church or people I've known before who are older and who are just like wise and beautiful and humble and amazing, if you get to know their stories, it's typically because they have navigated some pretty serious um, tragedies and, and, uh, and issues in their own lives and have done it in a way that somehow have come out more beautiful, more humble, more whatever. And you also recognize in my own life and in the lives of others that the people who, by force of will, do whatever they can to try to keep everything convenient and keep structures and everything on time and never deviate, and, and those people who just like cling tightly to the wheel of control tend to be the most insufferable people that we know, right? Can't, can't deal with shifts, can't deal with change. In fact, kind of, kind of get angry or upset at when things don't go the way they're supposed to go. And so there's this weird paradigm within our very souls that we long for what is convenient. You know, we, we want a warm cup of coffee. We want a soft chair. I mean, that's just, that's just what you do because it's convenient. It makes you comfortable. And we don't walk into a day thinking, I really hope I have a big conflict with my friend or whatever. And yet the fact of the matter is, it's when we are shoved off of our paths or we do have a conflict with somebody that if we work through it correctly, it actually makes us more beautiful, more loving. And that if we are allowed to stay on just the right path and to sit in just the right chair and to keep just the right structure, we actually don't become as nuanced, beautiful, creative, interesting as we could. Um, so that's really uh, stuck with me. The, the thing, uh, like I said about me, is that I love family, I love traditions, I love laughter, I love good food and drink and, and, and good connections and such. And one, um, uh, 
what this I think yeah, this first picture is just a snapshot from one uh, afternoon in my life, just this last Thanksgiving, and that is our extended family gathered around this long table that, that my niece back there in the back, who's got the orange shirt on, she had curated the whole thing. When we got there, she had everything laid out, and she was all set. And we played games, and we did stuff, and we, we all cooked together, and then this is in the middle of the Thanksgiving feast, and, and you can see most of the bottles of wine are empty, and we're all feeling good and having a great time. Great. I'm thankful, thankful, thankful for my family. Um, but the thing is, at this Thanksgiving meal, and in this whole day, this whole season actually, right, like not even just below the surface, sometimes just right there, and even in the midst of this meal, was just super poignant and powerful pain and, uh, and struggle and sadness. Um, because uh, these two right here, my brother and sister-in-law, Katie and Chris, who live about four blocks right up the street here, in this picture, one of them should have a three-week-old baby on their lap. But a week before this picture was taken, instead we had buried Cecilia and Margaret in a cemetery over here on 75th and Trees. Um, and so even in the midst of this, there was someone would share a story or something would we talk about something or who we were missing and, and the tears would flow and, and, uh, and we'd think about the pain and the kind of the raw nerve that we were all sitting with. And the thing that, uh, you know, there's, there's Count Rostov on the left there. There's me, you know, wanting, wanting everything just to be kind of right and good. And uh, the thing that I've realized, again, I've learned this lesson over and over throughout my life, but is that the, the things that uh, we seek to stay away from or to avoid, and I'm not saying any of us should want pain or suffering in our lives, but when those things take place, it's how we navigate that, that and, and how we stand in the midst of that, that we actually can experience the most holy and transformative aspects of life. It, if, if we, rather than deny it, run away from it. Most people, I would imagine, all of us have done this, I know I've done it, when something really, really shitty or hard happens, the, the, the immediate response, and sometimes we need to do this for a while just to kind of wall ourselves off, shut down, but then sometimes it's to get defensive or to get angry or to do a number of things. and. Um, the thing that amazed me about this whole process this fall was Katie and Chris and how somehow from the very beginning they made the determination that they, and they, um, they had endless nights of weeping and, and feeling horrible and, and sadness. Um, there was no denial at all, but somehow they made the decision that they were going to invite people into this pain with them. And so as soon as they got the diagnosis that their daughter, I have to, I have to um, read, read it off. But she, their daughter, Cecilia Margaret. Cecilia Margaret was um, uh, diagnosed with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Hypoplastic left heart syndrome is a um, is, a, is a, a nasty, severe um, congenital heart defect that basically one half of the baby's heart just doesn't develop. And as long as the baby is in utero, it can grow and, and everything is fine. But once the baby is a C-section or, or birth. Um, the heart just doesn't have the strength to pump oxygenated blood through the system in a way that will allow for life to continue. And so it either means that you have a series of very severe um, open heart surgeries, basically starting in about week two of this child's life, and will go for years with hopefully the life expectancy being somewhere around 30 if that, if it goes well, or a heart transplant, um, or um, 
which is often the case because children um, are not newborns, you know, or just don't have the, the strength, um, and their hearts can't, and their bodies can't deal with it. They, they, um, the choice is just made to just live as long as you can and, and love those children. So that's what, what Katie and Chris did. Um, they, from the very beginning, invited everybody into this process. They sat down and talked with their three little kids, and their, their youngest girl is, is sitting at the end with a pink heart on her shirt. Um, they had the most amazing, brutal, honest, appropriate conversations with their kids about what was going on. They invited their church family in. They invited their biological family in. They invited friends in. And, uh, and somehow between the two of them, they determined not to circle the wagons and to get defensive or, or angry, even though they certainly went through phases of that. They instead kind of opened up their system. And one of the things that we did um, is I got to know the people at their uh, church, the pastors at their church. They worship at a church that's a lot more conservative than ours. Um, there's pretty traditional gender roles that are kind of um, assigned because of that faith. Um, the way they view politics and things are different than us, and um, we don't talk about that a whole lot. I, I love the two of them. They're amazing people, amazing parents and friends. Um, but we were invited on a couple of different occasions to come together for kind of a prayer service, to pray for them and to pray for Cecilia, and uh, we would get together with these folks who, theologically, I was just not in the same place with at all, and my family, and her, one of her sisters is a pastor who's pretty progressive feminist liberal uh, and then me and my liberal family and we were all coming together with these more conservative folks and uh, it didn't matter we became family we held hands and we sang songs and we prayed and uh, and it was it was uh, it was amazing that their courage and their ability to let people into their lives actually and into their brokenness allowed for people who never would connect with each other to become family to become family in a way um, so they, uh, they um, were surprised, we were all surprised, because Cecilia came early, and, and partially because of that, because she was even smaller uh, than most babies who were born with hypoplastic um, left heart syndrome. Uh, it was, um, she, was, she was taken to NICU, Cecilia was, and Katie and Chris every day would put this list of all the people that had the right to come in and to hold her and to be with her. And uh, it was, there was just like all those people in the waiting room who were like, you know, you could only have three or four people in there at once. And all day long, different people were coming in. My wife went every night and uh, um, sang lullabies. And it was, you know, in the, you know, those of you who have been in these situations, that the nurses, the staff are just amazing. And it's just like this holy ground, this little NICU station. And, um, after uh, about five days, they determined that um, the most loving thing to do and the wise thing to do was to take Cecilia home. And so they did, and we helped you know, bring her home with all this gear, and, and there was a hospice nurse that came home with them that stayed downstairs, and for the next um, almost two weeks, there's Cecilia at home, and uh, she had to have a little oxygen every once in a while, but basically her little sisters and brother played with her, and they had family snuggle parties, and people came over and passed her around, and um, she was beautiful. I mean, seriously, one of the most beautiful little babies um, that I've ever seen. Uh, and the generosity that Chris and Katie had to both navigate their pain and what they knew was going to happen and their 
welcoming of people into their lives was astounding. And so um, the, the morning that we got the text that Cecilia had died in the night between the two of them, we all went over to their house again, and once again it was filled with people crying and talking and praying and singing and, and uh, again taking turns holding her little baby, her little body, and kissing her and asking God's to wrap her and to hold her and it was it was awful um, they asked me to go sit with them at the um, funeral home and to sit there and pick out an infant sized coffin um, you know just nothing you, you want to do uh, so you are left with this situation where you've got this baby who was beautiful and perfect, but whose heart just wasn't ready. And for this broken world, and I, no, this is not part of God's plan. I don't believe that for a minute. But she is now, my faith tells me, with God, and her heart is whole, and our hearts are left broken. And yet, what Katie and Chris did to allow people into that brokenness together was astounding and remarkable. Um, and as I was sharing this with the staff and others, um, uh, and just, just the other day, Kristen uh, shared with me this kind of a story, this parable that, that, I don't know if it was Parker Palmer or whoever, about what you do with a broken heart. And I don't know if you'd want to. that on the one hand if you're on this side of suffering, well I don't know you can be anywhere, but you can sometimes hear, hear that kind of stuff and go that's trite bullshit like, you know, but on the other hand um, when you have walked through it, you've, ex you've experienced that there is something remarkably true and kind of circling back to what I said at the beginning about how 
if life could just go exactly the way we wanted it, and everything stay on schedule and never be inconvenienced, we kind of all know that that's not typically our best selves. At the same time, we would never wish for, desire, any of, of the, the horrible, difficult things that we endure through life. And yet the idea that somehow we think that we can live such a life or we should continue to hope for such a life is really naive. And if we continue to live in that kind of naive world, all we will do is become bitter, frustrated, whatever. But if somehow we can continue to evolve in our understanding of life and pain and allowing our hearts as they are broken to, to share that brokenness with others, that's where I think the difference between the shards and the openness takes place is by inviting other people into the process. Um, and when we do that and other people can help us to carry that brokenness and we can learn from them about their brokenness, then somehow we're able to connect with people in a way that we never would have before. Um, and again, not to minimize or to make rosy any suffering, but there's something within that that is, um, that is eternal and remarkable um, and, and, uh, and I think is um, essential to our becoming more human in a, in a, in a, in a godlike way. Um, so I'll just, just leave it there. I just loved that, that notion of the two ways that the heart can break. And I'm, I'm just curious what, how that resounds with you all or your own experience. And, and it's okay if you disagree or I'm wondering if anybody has uh, the courage or experience to share a uh, perhaps something that you went through, maybe in childhood or young adulthood or whatever, that shattered you, that you're pretty sure you used as shards to hurt others or to, or to strike out and to, uh, to be kind of weaponize your, your pain as a way to cope with it. then that, that uh, in our own lives where we feel like we have maybe learned that lesson or we've gone through something that was shattering but somehow we've kind of seen that it's actually made our hearts a little bit bigger or allowed us to be a little bit more empathetic. Does anybody have a, an example like that? I mean, is there something also strange that we do is we really try to shield children from pain and loss and Honestly, there's some some folks that, as I've gotten to know them, there's like a depth of character to them. Like, I've, I'm, I've, all of you could probably, when you say, like, here's a person like, which has a depth of character, it's a grounded, wise person. I just found, in my role, because I get to talk to people about personal things, so often it's like, yeah, well, when I was four years old, I almost died with polio, whatever, and this happened, and, da, 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 and I finally made it through. And it, or, But, like, somewhere early on in life, something happened, or they lost to someone, and they somehow were able to work through it. And there's a depth of character. There's a groundedness. There's a maturity somehow. Yeah, there's a maturity there that I think we deprive children of when we won't even we won't even let them walk by with a stroller. If there's a dead squirrel, we'll go someplace else because we don't we don't even want them to. And I think that's I think we're missing something if, if we don't talk about and deal with pain and death and tragedy and uh, the way it, it can. And inconvenience, yeah. And not, not to be morbid or not to be inappropriate, but just to walk with our kids through that, I think is, can be incredibly formative for good reason. Um, so I think, I think Cecilia's little sister and brother, forever, will 
imagery that we don't talk about in the church, but so often a lot of Christmas hymns or Christmas pageants will have Jesus wrapped in swaddling cloths. And for us, it's like, oh, it's comfy and cozy and wonderful, but kind of what that symbolized to folks who were in the first generation or other words, it was the next time that Jesus will be wrapped in cloths of virgin death. So if you think about the women going into the tomb to prepare his body and wrapping him, and so kind of what the church was symbolizing through that was not, oh, he's comfy and cozy and this is a great picture, but already anticipating his death, which I think is just an interesting thing, whether you're thinking about at that time that a lot of babies would not have survived, or, or the fact that even in that moment at that, as Mary was holding this baby, to also know that mm -hmm. she was wrapping him in the clothes that he would die in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like, how does our faith hold both of those things? Like the joy of having this baby be born, and at the same time already recognizing that life's going to be very hard. Yeah. And I just, I think that there's a beauty that draw from this childhood story of like, oh, isn't that cute? The miracle's mm -hmm. a little snuggy. Yeah. And mm -hmm. to say, no, 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 our faith has more depth there. And then even the death wouldn't be the end of the story. Yeah. Like, so just, I don't know, there's something that I love about that imagery. Yeah. Kind of like the care and, you know, the spices and all the sweet mm -hmm. and the perfumes. And also how do you care for a baby without the kind of the, when I think about it, like, okay, not as parents, but like, you're real, you have to care for a baby. You have to touch its skin. You have to clean it. But the time that you do that is when someone dies and they're unconscious and you're having to bathe them and you're having to, you know, help them use the bathroom and you're having to wipe their brow. So kind of that circle of life of at the very beginning and the very end. How do you rely on your faith? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to invite us to close with this blessing here and keep going and pass it around. This is written by Dan Richardson, who's a pastor and a poet and artist, and she's one of my favorite folks to turn to, and a lot of what she does is write blessings and kind of reflections. And so um, if we're going to kind of center ourselves, I'd invite you to take your hands and just make fists, kind of think about the heart being clenched, and this idea that Paul writes about, that there's no way to be human without having one's heart broken open. So I invite you to open your hands, and specifically, God breaks the heart again and again and again until it stays open. So close your hands one more time. This time you might ask God, we'll say, God, break open our hearts. Okay, one, two, three. God, break open our hearts. Do it one more time. God, break open our hearts. This is what she writes. All the blessings for the brokenhearted. There is no remedy for life but to love more and renew it grow. Let us agree, for now, that we will not say the breaking makes us stronger, or that it is better to have this pain than to have done without this love. Let us promise we will not tell ourselves time will heal the wound when every day our awakening opens it anew. Perhaps for now it can be enough to 
simply marvel at the mystery of how a heart so broken can go on beating as if it were made for precisely this, as if it knows the only cure for love is more of this, as if it sees the heart's sole remedy for breaking is to love still, as if it trusts that its own persistent pulse is the rhythm of a blessing we cannot begin to fathom, but will save us nonetheless.